to Acts chapter 13. Wow, was I on during the entire singing portion? Okay, good. That would be bad. Very bad. Um, yes. Uh, we're going to be uh, dipping back or doubling back to uh, a portion of Acts chapter 13 that I, I think is important. Every now and again, somebody will come up to me and say, hey, what did, what did the Bible mean here? Or what did Paul mean? Or what did Jesus mean? And nobody asked me about this passage or its interpretation. I was sh- shocked. Um, but So since no one seemed particularly interested, I'm going <laughs> to preach on it anyway. Um, so we're going to read from Acts chapter 13. Uh, starting in verse 44, and we'll finish in verse 49, and then pray, and then turn to the explanation of God's Word. The Scripture says in Acts 13, starting in verse 44, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the Word of the Lord. This is after Paul's introductory sermon to, to the people of Pisidian Antioch. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to read this word, to hear you speak in our Language, Lord, we're mindful this morning of what our brother Keith Franklin said, that there are over 2,000 languages in which no portion of Scripture is available, Father. Uh, the, the staggering idea that when, when we go to a hotel, if you just look for two minutes, you can find a, a Bible there the whole Bible in a language that we can understand, and yet there are places in the world where if people said, what is God's word, they will not be able to find it in their language. They would need to learn another, or, or, or if, if they knew, or if the portion was available in their language, Father, in many languages it is but a small portion, some selections from the New Testament, in others, uh, the New Testament itself, and Many languages do not have the whole Old Testament. Father, we're also mindful of the fact that in some countries it is so prohibitively expensive to print the Bible that many bookstores do not even carry it when it is available in that language. So, Father, we pray that we would value your word first consecrating it in our hearts and obeying it, but also, Father, uh, giving cheerfully to the work of translation that your word might be faithfully proclaimed in every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Father, I pray that as we 
let this scripture rest on our hearts this morning. I pray that, that we would be challenged through it, changed and transformed. Father, let us claim what Paul claimed for himself, audacious as it is. And may we live out your promises faithfully, empowered by your Holy Spirit, justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, many times I find that um, uh, in talking to people, they'll, they'll, they, will, they will share small dreams. Uh, and I say small dreams, meaning that they have big dreams, uh, but when they, when they share them, they, they tend to use reducing words. Have you ever, have you ever noticed this in conversation? Somebody uh, will, will prepare something to say in a, in a meeting or uh, in, a, in a church setting, and they'll say, they'll say I'm going to get up and I'm going to give my little speech, right? They'll, they'll attach the word small to it to kind of make it seem less important. Uh, they'll, they'll say, um, Pastor, will you, would you pray a little prayer? I don't do this because I, I'm not an obnoxious person. That was the first joke. Maybe there'll be more if you laugh. Um, but, but I've heard pastors say things like, I don't pray little prayers because I don't have a little God. Uh, but we use this kind of reducing language to, to uh, make ourselves seem less important or, or less uh, proud or whoever, who knows why. Uh, when, when people think about their, their Christian life, they tend to use that kind of language as well. They, they think about the ministries in the scriptures, the ministry of Paul, or, or the ministry of Mary, of Mary and Martha. And, and they'll compare themselves in some sense, but they'll say, I'm, you know, I'm not that, right? I'm, I'm, I feel, you know, Paul's my hero, but I'm not, I'm not quite there. You know, and they, they reduce it. They say, I'm not that. And yet, when we look at our biblical examples, specifically in this passage, we find Paul doing that very thing. Not, not saying, I'm not that, but saying, I am that. Okay, let me, let, me, let me unpack this a little bit. Now, when you study the Bible, when you, when you read the Scripture, uh, we believe, as Christians, that God's Word is inspired as it is. It doesn't need any fluff added to it. It doesn't need to be expanded improved. Uh, as, as one pastor says, the Bible is not boring. People are boring. Pastors make the Bible boring. People reading the Bible without imagination makes it boring. The Bible's not boring. When we come to the Bible, we believe that the best interpretation is the original interpretation. The Bible can never mean what it never meant, okay? I can't come across a passage of the Bible and say, uh, oh, what this is saying to me is something that has absolutely nothing to do with what it meant when it was originally written. The best interpretation is the original interpretation. And so when we run across quotes of the Bible in the Bible and we analyze them, sometimes we're like, wait a minute, what is he doing with that quotation there? Sometimes it seems like some of our heroes aren't using the Bible correctly. So how is it in the midst of this passage that, that Paul uses this verse in verse 47? Okay, Paul is disputing with people who are opposing him. He tells the, the crowd, the, the, uh, the gathered Jewish people who are rejecting the gospel, he tells them that it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to them first. 
But since they're rejecting it, thrusting it aside, judging themselves unworthy of eternal life, he said, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And then he says, for so the Lord commanded us. God's command to us is to be witnesses to the Gentiles. Saying, now here's the command from the Lord. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now maybe at this point you're like, what's the big deal? Now this quote is a combo quotation of the Old Testament. Kind of like if somebody says the Bible says and then they take the beginning of one verse and the end of another and they kind of cram them together without violating the meaning. This is, this is the kind of quote that he's given us here. Okay, listen to the original section where this comes from. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Isaiah says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. This passage applies to the nation. You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He, that's the Lord, you can see that in verse 5, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This servant, Israel, is embodied in a singular person to call all of Israel back together. It, it may be a prophet or it may be the singular expected prophet of the end times who will be the summation of all things, the Messiah. How then does, does Paul take up verse 6 and say the Lord commanded us, Paul and Barnabas, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles. How, how could that be? That seems like an awful big claim. The second part of the verse comes from Isaiah 42. Listen to this. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, many Jewish scholars have debated, does this apply to Isaiah himself, or does it apply to Israel, or does it apply to the coming Messiah? There, there have been different arguments and different interpretations. Standard Christian interpretation is that this is the Messiah spoken of here. Nowhere, anywhere in any Jewish literature does it say that this could perhaps apply to the Apostle Paul. And nowhere in most Christian interpretation does it say that this predicts the coming of the Apostle Paul. So going on, understanding that Paul is going to appropriate this to himself, he says this, He, speaking of the servant, will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Jesus claims this passage for himself in the Gospels. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison prison those who sit in darkness. Do you hear what what Paul is calling to himself here? You, You may be called to a teaching ministry. You may, you may be called to a preaching ministry. I, I believe it's, it's my, my task as the pastor to, to raise up followers of Christ, to make disciples who, who make other disciples. But that's the office. But I, don't, I think you can search throughout the sermons that I've preached here over the last six years or so, and never have I ever said, like, like Paul, I'm that. I'm Paul. And certainly I've never said, Messiah, that, like that's me. Wow, what is Paul doing? The Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Let's think about this. Jesus Christ is the singular servant of God. He alone is the word of the Lord. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was there in the beginning, echoing Genesis chapter 1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. When God created the heavens and the earth, the word was there. It says, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Is the word God, or is he with God? Yes, he is, he is there. He was in the beginning with God, so he reiterates these two entities are there in the beginning, and yet they are one. All things were made through him, through the word. Without him was not anything made that was made, saying that the word himself is unmade. He was there in the past from the very beginning. He's always been the word. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light and the word. We see this in verse 14 where it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The whole gospel of John is the telling of the glory that they saw in Jesus Christ as he served and loved and work signs and was ultimately glorified on the cross and then raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is the singular servant of God. And God speaks through Jesus as his final word. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 say this, Long ago 
At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God used many means, dreams, visions, signs, all kinds of things in the Old Testament to speak to the people. But in these last days, the writer of Hebrews says, the clearest, penultimate, final, or ultimate, and final speaking of God is spoken through his Son, the heir of all things, the one who created the world, that is Jesus Christ, the Lord. How could Paul claim these things for himself? Jesus is preeminent in God's word. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1, if you want to flip there. Starting in verse 15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you hear that change there? In, in, in the, the, the verses starting in 15, we see that, that Jesus is very God, as the old creeds say, very God of very God. He is 100% God, eternally God, from, from eternity past to eternity future, and is God through this time that we would call the present, our past and present, this limited time that, that, that we have been in existence as the planet Earth and the human race. Jesus created all things, all things created through him and for him. He's before all things, in him all things hold together. That's the cosmic divine Jesus, the head of the body, the church. But then it says in verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, speaking of his humanity as he took on human form, marrying 100% man to 100% God. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. That's what the Bible teaches. God was dwelling in him, in this man. He was fully God and fully man. And through him, God the Father reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus takes our unrighteousness on himself on the cross. He lays down his life and dies for us that when we put our faith and trust in him, we can receive his righteousness. Look at what it says in verse 21 here. And you, speaking to all Christians who have, who have believed and trusted in the gospel, you, you were once alienated from God. You had no connection with God. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This was all of our lives before we came to Christ. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above, above reproach before him. On the cross, Jesus makes all things right so that the parties who are out of alignment with one another, God the Father who, who is infinitely offended, and the Son we count in this this group of offended as well, and the Holy Spirit. The Godhead is offended by humanity's sin, and we are the offenders, righteously convicted of our wrongs. Jesus pays our penalty for us if we will put our faith and trust in him. And not only does he pay our penalty, but he makes us righteous. He has reconciled this, verse 22 says, in his body, by the body of flesh, by his death, in order that he may present us holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is the good news that when we trust in Christ, when, when God applies Christ's righteousness to our account, though we run this infinite negative balance that we can never repay, God declares us, righteous, justified before him, holy and blameless and above reproach. You are not just forgiven of your sin in Christ. You don't, if, if you owe negative one billion righteousness points and you trust in Christ, your account does not come up to zero. You're not, you're not even. The righteousness of Christ is applied to you, which is like plus infinite righteousness points. Does that make sense? No sin, no guilt, no condemnation can ever, ever stick to you again. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, we're called to persevere in our faith. How is the message of the gospel received. How does, this, how, how, do, how does this blessing come to people? Is it just that, that Jesus goes to heaven having, uh, having, having suffered on the cross and, and being raised? Does God just kind of pour out the blessings, as some people would say, and, and it's applied to all? No, the Bible does not teach that. The same Bible that teaches that, that God loves the world and gave his son that no one should perish also teaches how we get the message. And so these people who get into pulpits and teach that it's all good and God loves you and, 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 and man, nothing is going to stand between you and self-actualization, you know, and all the blessings, just believe and name it and claim it and all that nonsense. If they do not actually get around to preaching the gospel, they are, they are damning people with their message, immunizing them against the truth. How is the message received? The Bible tells us. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's confidence in that verse. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there is, there is a firm assurance of salvation, but there is also a condition there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Paul then enters into this, to this crisis of explanation now where, where he is answering some of the questions that may occur in our mind. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? How can someone call in, on someone whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him if they've never heard of him, he says? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? What a joy it is to commission Keith and Elizabeth this morning and to send them out as our missionaries in this strategic position, enlisting others, in, in going, translating, sending, so that those who go and preach will have a word to preach. How are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. Verse 16 is an entire sermon in and of itself. But then Paul goes on in verse 17 and says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. When God builds his people, when God calls people to repentance, when God calls people to himself, he calls them through his word. God speaks creation into existence by his word. When he speaks and calls the people up out of Egypt, when Moses comes down from the mountain with commands from God, they are his where God gives breath to the prophets and he sends his word to them over and over and over again. When Ezekiel, I believe it is, is confronted with a valley of dry bones, he looks and God says, speak to them. And when he speaks the breath of God, the Holy Spirit indwells this army and they stand on their feet. The word of God is how God works in the world. Joshua 21, 45. means that a faithful, uneloquent proclaimer of God's word can be more than a thousand gifted psychologists through the Spirit of God. One Christian armed with the Bible, quoting it in your workplace, quoting it on your campus, sharing it with your friends, texting it, tweeting it, Facebook posting it. Now those last three there should not be like the primary means of proclaiming God's word, but launching God's word into the world is the way that he works, the way that he calls people to himself. This is why Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. As Christians, we're called to be shaped and guided by God's word. What does Jesus say in John 14, verse 15? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. As Christians, we're called to be ruled by God's word. This is not an authority that we're over. 
interpreting it as we will, making it say whatever we want. But the Bible does not stand alongside of us as, uh, here's my brain, and I use my brain to interpret God's word and to determine what I won't obey and what I will obey. It's not the way it works. The Bible is over us. It's our authority. It shapes our worldview and controls how we look at God and how we look at the world. Anybody who says that they believe that God loves people based on this word, and that he will show grace to people based on this word, but then has no room for calling out sin, or for calling people to repent, does not believe this word. They're just using it as their database for making up whatever they want. We're called to submit to God's word, to allow it to shape us. We're called to leave the word alone, to let it stand in its own meaning. And yet we're called to let the word in to transform us what Paul says in Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word dwell in you. Because as we release it, as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and we admonish and encourage one another, God does his work by his spirit. Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, that'd be weird, huh? I've seen reverse snow or reverse rain. When, when the snow and the rain come down, they water the earth. They make it spring forth and sprout going on right now, which is why so many of us are sneezing and coughing, because the, the earth is springing forth and, and spraying yellow everywhere. I am of the opinion that had Adam and Eve not sinned against God, we would, we would love the yellow everywhere. It would cause no allergies. As the rain and the snow come down, making the earth bring forth and sprout to the seeds of the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word hidden in our hearts, internalized, and then released, releases the power of God in our lives, in our environment, in our presence. And this is true of Jesus. Now let me just say this. I affirm that Jesus has already done it is 100% God. He is the Son of God from eternity past to eternity future. There never was a time when he wasn't. And yet when he became a man, he became a very real man who lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He committed God's word to memory and he quoted it profusely and he lived as an obedient, spirit-filled man. Listen life of Jesus. This is what he says in Isaiah 53, verse 10. You know the earlier part. You may not know this part, but you probably know this verse. Yet it was the will 
of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he still only can offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is Jesus saying, it is finished, and knowing that he has purchased salvation for humanity. But listen to what he says next. Listen to what Isaiah says. By his knowledge, by his knowledge, not by his obedience, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. As the Son of God going to the cross, Jesus' death is of infinite worth. And that means that his death can apply to every single human being who ever was. But as a man, he lived a holy and obedient life, fully dependent on God, living out the commands of Scripture as he knew them. He loved his father and he obeyed his father's commandments. Now, so stick with me, I'm going somewhere with this. We're coming back to Paul in just a minute. By his knowledge, because Jesus knew God's word and lived it out, never sinning, always obeying, always exalting his father's will in his mind, his heart, his actions, and his attitude. He was able, by his knowledge, to save the many. As he died on that cross, Jesus says this in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. When we put our faith and trust in the gospel, in this man who is God, this God who became man, who died on the cross, there, there, there occurs a union of spirit as the Holy Spirit comes to well in us. The Bible says that, that God makes his home with us. That's right there in John 14, 23. But it, the union between God and man is also evidenced by obedience. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Obedience and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit go together. Our salvation is not of works. We don't have to be good in order to earn our salvation or to maintain it, but our salvation, our union with Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelling with us, within us, produces obedience. Now listen, here we go. Here it comes. This is the prayer of Jesus on the night before he died. Jesus prays, John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the twelve, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's those who follow them, and everyone else, including us. Also for those who will believe through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me,
the word. Pray to the twelve and to all who believe through them, that they, the twelve, and all who would believe may be what? Together, unified. In the same way that the Father, Jesus says, in verse 21, I'm not making this up, John 17, verse 21, the Father is in Christ, and Christ is in the Father, that believers may also be in the Father and the Son. How does that work? I, can, I always think of, we have a set of these things on the shelf in our home, these uh, Matryoshka dolls, you know what these are? Matryoshka? Russian nesting dolls, right? The first Russian nesting doll set was carved in 
Paul says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's consciousness in the sight of God. Essentially, keep the word. Paul then says, for what we proclaim, verse 5, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who spoke the universe into existence and said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. What does this mean? It means that every single Christian is that. You know, we, we say, we say, I, I think I'm called to a preaching ministry, like Paul. No, no, no. No. When you go into your workplace and you speak God's word, when you share the word of God with someone, you are, you are lifting up God's word and the Holy Spirit is there in your spirit. And as the Bible says in John 16, that he is in the world convicting sin, righteousness, and judgment. You are setting up the word. You're putting it up so that people can see it because God can speak through you. The surpassing greatness of God bursting forth in witness. All we need to do is speak and be brave. Because that's what God has commanded us. Paul Commands Jesus himself and applies it to himself in a way that we also should as well. Because Jesus says that we are light. We're to go out into the world and to be light. He has made us his witnesses. The Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, let me sum up by saying this. Don't ever reduce yourself. Don't ever embrace a kind of false humility that lies about who you are in the eyes of God. Because one Christian armed with the word of God going out into the world carries the presence of Christ, the spirit of Christ, the word of God, the Holy Spirit working through us in the world. God is the one who does the work. You are called to bring the word wherever you are. So be encouraged, be brave, be bold, and proclaim the gospel because through you, God calls others to himself. Whether they believe or not is not on you. As long as you do the job of testifying, make sure that your witness includes the word. Make sure that's what you're testifying to. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, that, that we would be bold. Father, none of us, I believe, because, because of, of humility, at times because of false humility, none of us wants to embrace Our righteousness. We're intimidated into not believing that we're justified at times. And sometimes we don't want to come across as pompous. And so we don't proclaim the gospel in the way 
that we all and acting like we truly are free from sins. Lord, but that's what you declare about us when we trust in Christ, that we're righteous. And you call us to take these commands to ourselves. Father, Jesus came into this world to testify to the truth. And when he left, he left the 12 to testify. And when they left, they left faithful men. Father, and it has come down to us. We are your hands and feet in the world that ought to fill us with fear had you not given us these promises that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Father, I pray that we would be bold and that we would speak your words, Lord. Not one word of all the good promises that you've made in your word has failed. You've fulfilled them all. May we go satisfied in the righteousness that comes from Christ, filled with your word. May we devote our hearts and minds to the study of your word, to the application of its commands to our life, out of joy for what you've done for us. And may we speak those words to those who need to hear them, Father, that they might hear and believe and rejoice and go and share as well. Father, we thank you. We love you. We pray your blessing on the remainder of our day. Amen.